Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of your favorite paranormal podcast called Paranormal Exposed. This is the evidence-based podcast that looks into various paranormal occurrences that happen here in the United States. I'm your host, Michelle, and I am a skeptic by nature, but I am looking to be a believer. I am both intrigued by the paranormal and really open to the possibilities of what might be out there. So join me every Wednesday as I dive into a different paranormal topic and present to you what is real, what is not real, and what may just be in between. I'll present both the historical facts as well as the paranormal reports, and we will see where the two meet. So join me in exposing the paranormal. This week's episode takes us out west to the city of Logan, Utah, and this is the covering story of St. Anne's Nunnery. And of course, as always in these episodes, I am going to cover the brief history before I get into the haunted reports of what is going on at St. Anne's. So St. Anne's didn't actually start as a nunnery, and it wasn't called St. Anne's at all. Its history actually dates back to the early 1900s with a local businessman named Hezekiah Hatch. Hezekiah actually rented the property and used it with the use of a special use permit, which he acquired. Now, the property, it's about 10 miles outside of the actual city of Logan, so it does have a little remote quality as a good getaway from the city. In 1918, Hezekiah actually built the first structure on the property, which was a cabin for his wife, Georgia. Though about a year later in 1919, both Georgia and one of their sons ended up passing away, so they really didn't get to enjoy the property for very long. Now, after Georgia's death, Hezekiah wasn't really keen on going to the cabin his wife once loved. It just really reminded him of her. Therefore, he kind of transferred ownership of it to one of his sons and his brother-in-law, who took over both the cabin and the camp property. They were well off in their own rights as a family, and they owned multiple businesses in the area. So with the extra money they had, they began expanding the property, changing it pretty much from a dingy camp with one cabin to a summer getaway for both family and friends. It was a pretty ritzy retreat, And the family, again, was well off, so they hosted some pretty high-ranking socialites, including movie stars and government officials. The family actually lived in New York, but they used this as a getaway for, again, themselves and their friends. For decades, the family enjoyed this ever-expanding retreat, though with time, it became less and less used as it was harder and harder to get away from the city and get out to Utah. The family eventually decided that it was time to get rid of the property as they weren't using it and it was becoming a little derelict. So they decided to donate it to the local church. They tried to donate it both to the Church of Latter-day Saints as well as the local university, but both entities were not excited about the offer and declined to accept it. Eventually, in the 1950s, the family was able to get someone to accept their donation of this amazing property. And that was the Roman Catholic Diocese via the St. Thomas Aquinas Church in Logan, Utah. Up until this point, the property had had the name pretty much known as the Hatch family's property and things like that. But the church then gave it the name of St. Anne's Retreat. 
After acquiring the property, the church ended up naming it St. Anne's Retreat, and they began using the property as a getaway for two separate congregations of nuns located in Salt Lake City called both the Sisters of the Holy Cross and the Benedictines. It was not called a nunnery, though, as nunneries require the nuns to live on site all the time, and these nuns were legitimately just using it as a getaway or retreat. They would come here to be able to focus more on prayer, strengthen in their relationship with God, and things like that. Though there was a problem at that time with the local teens and things like that, as they began coming up and vandalizing the property, sneaking onto the property, as there weren't really a lot of nuns and things like that in the area, and people were just really curious. Lots of rumors were starting, and the local teens and vandals were wanting to kind of see what was going on up there. This was a little off-putting to the nuns. They were a little scared as these teens were coming sometimes in the middle of the night. They were ruining the property. They were drinking. They were doing drugs. The nuns eventually got guard dogs, but this didn't help much either in keeping the teens and the vandals out. So as time went on, the nuns became more and more fearful. The property was vandalized more and more. And eventually in 1978, it closed as the nuns no longer wanted to come here due to their fear associated with those who sneaking on the property. After it had closed, the church went ahead and did some renovations to begin using it as a summer camp for the Boys Club of Weber and the Salt Lake Central City Community Center. It functioned as a summer camp in this manner until 1987 when the church officially closed the property. And they did so as it really was only used as a summer camp, and during the off-season, it experienced many issues with vandalism. So after they would come back from the summer, there would be broken windows, roof issues, all sorts of stuff that the church was having to put a lot of money into fixing. In 1992, the property was sold to a group of several families in the area, and they went ahead and fixed it up and again began rounding it as a summer camp called Pine Glen Cove. Though again, the issues with vandalism continued and the families couldn't keep up with it, so eventually it closed again. In 2006, a man named Chad Godfrey purchased the property and was looking to renovate the camp. On December 27th of 2006, he had the property added to the National Register of Historic Places. And this leads to the owner being able to collect up to 40% back on his investments in restoration if they maintain its historical nature. When it was acquired, after multiple expansions from the Hatch family, the following owners, it is now a sprawling retreat. It includes 21 buildings and structures, including two main lodges. There are six cabins, a pool house, a playhouse, a generator house, and a swimming pool. At one time, there was a horse stable, an amphitheater, a movie theater, and things like that. But over the years, those became more and more derelict and vandalized, so they were demolished and are no longer part of the property. After Godfrey had gotten it put on the Register of Historic Places and had been working on it for a while, he realized that he was not going to be able to keep up with the renovations because of the constant vandalism that halted and reversed progress on the property. So in 2010, he ended up putting the property up for sale. Now, the Forest Service does own the property, 
and it's now just under three acres. In 2015, the property began being rented out to a man named Mark Nielsen, and it is said that he is currently renovating it. But what is it going to be used for? Well, not just for himself, because in order to use the property, the Forest Service has issued a special use permit, and once issued, he must make the property available to the public when it opens. So will it be a retreat, a museum, a camp? I guess we'll have to wait and see. As he hasn't made a statement as to what it will be used for, the only things he posts is he has a Facebook page that really just posts pictures of intruders who come on the property and vandalize it so that they might be arrested or prosecuted. Now, I'm sure it's going to take a while for this to be of public use, as since it was on the Register of Historic Places, any remodeling or changes to the property has to go through an approval process, and those can take quite a while. Though only 11 of the 21 buildings are actually covered by this need for an approval process and six other structures on the property. Because of its haunted history and past, ghost seekers, vandals, people like that have frequented the spot. And Nielsen actually installed many, many security cameras to prevent continued damage to the property he's trying to fix up, which is how he has the Facebook page with the pictures of the people who have broken onto the property. And it's gotten so bad that park rangers actually regularly patrol the area and there is a minimum of a $750 fine if you are caught and up to three months in jail. So that brings us up to speed of what is going on today with St. Anne's Retreat property. Before I get into the haunted reports and what has brought them on, I want to give you all a podcast recommendation. And the podcast I'm going to recommend today is part of the BooPod Network. This BooPod Network is a network of amazing podcasts, including this one. And what we do is we help promote each other so we can bring great podcasts to more ears. And today I'd like to recommend the podcast called Generally Spooky. This husband and wife duo brings some spooky fun in a very charming way. So listen to their trailer and make sure you check out their podcast. Scotland's history is ghoulish, ghastly, and at times downright gruesome. Who wouldn't want to hear more about it? If you're interested in learning more about Scotland's history, legends, and ghost stories, then the Generally Spooky podcast is for you. My name is Ailey, researcher, storyteller, and believer in ghosts. And my name is Kieran. I'm chief listener, provider of jokes, and Ailey's husband. And we are the co-hosts of the Generally Spooky podcast. Join us as we discuss things like the Loch Ness Monster, the Mackenzie Poltergeist, the Battle of Culloden, and so much more. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You can also find us for free on YouTube and over at our website, generallyspooky.com. We'll see you there. See you there. All right, let's get into the hauntings that are said to be going on at St. Anne's Retreat. This property has quite a number of spooky stories and sightings associated with it. When walking the property or visiting the structures on the property, you may hear or see things that you wish you never had. When walking through the woods, you will hear terrified, quiet sobs that echo through the trees, but you can never quite find where they're coming from. And of course, no one is ever there. 
At times, you can hear a barking or snarling dog, and some claim that it is a hellhound, while others say it was the guard dog used by the nuns in the day it was used as a retreat. Many reports claim the ghost dogs are two red-eyed Dobermans who sometimes are seen with a nun holding their leash. The dogs will chase your car off property at times as well. Sounds can also be quite disturbing as you will hear children talking and laughing and you can also sometimes even hear them crying and screaming. Many times these cries sound as if they are from infants and this is very prominent around the swimming pool. Seen walking on the property as well is a woman dressed completely in black, though not of a nun. It looks like a woman wearing a black gown like she's mourning. And while on the property, it's not just the sights and smells, but also some of the feelings that are reported. It is said that you can feel a dark energy throughout the entire property, and the feeling can be so strong that many claim it feels as though they are being physically pushed down. This can make it even hard to walk around the property at times. In addition to this feeling, there's also the feeling that you are never alone. It's as if something is always following and or watching you. In addition to this, cold spots are felt throughout. These are sometimes small temperature changes, but at times, even on a warm night, you will enter spots which are absolutely freezing cold. This phenomenon is especially common around the swimming pool, which is again where many of the sounds of children emanate from. This brings us to the most disturbing haunted report of the property. And be prepared for this last tidbit as it does evoke quite a morbid scene involving babies. Some evenings you might go to visit the pool and find it full of water, even though it hasn't held water for quite some time. That is not the disturbing part, though. It's what's floating in the water that will disturb even the most stoic person, as in the water you will see the bodies of babies floating dead in the water. In addition to this quite disturbing sight, people report feeling their ankles grabbed by tiny infant hands near water sources on the property, including this said swimming pool. Also, around the pool and the surrounding woods, people claim to see the apparition of a nun. So you might wonder why a family vacation spot, a Catholic church retreat for nuns, and summer camps might be haunted. We'll sit back, relax, and listen to the spooky tales associated with these haunted reports. St. Anne's Retreat was supposed to be a place of worship and relationship building with God, though this is just what they want you to think, right? Legend has it that the church used St. Anne's as a place of punishment and to hide issues with the nuns. The most common reason nuns would be sent here was because they had broken their vows of celibacy. Some state this was due to relations between both nuns and the priests. Though regardless of how the vow was broken, it was found out by the church when these nuns became pregnant. Once the pregnancy was known, the Catholic Church would send the woman to St. Anne's, 
Here they would carry their baby to term and give birth without anyone knowing that this had happened outside of the church. Once born, these babies would be placed in orphanages for adoption and the cover-up would be complete. Though eventually this perfect system came face to face with a large hiccup in their plans. One nun could not imagine giving up her newborn baby boy. When she looked down at her son, she loved him so much that she knew she had to find a way to keep him. In the middle of the night, the woman decided it was now or never. She fled from St. Anne's through the woods surrounding the property, though unfortunately she must not have been very sneaky or quiet as it wasn't long before she heard people looking for her. She could even hear the head nun shouting for her to come back and do the right thing. But the nun would have none of it. She knew the right thing was being a mother to her precious newborn baby boy, no matter if that meant even renouncing being a nun. This meant that she had to get away and protect her child, and she decided the best thing to do was make a distraction. She hid her child under some bushes and took off, making enough noise to draw those chasing her away from the baby. And luckily for her, it worked. And eventually those following her lost her trail and gave up. After a time, she carefully made her way back to where she had hidden her son. But when she got there, the baby was gone. At first, she thought she must have gotten turned around and started to walk away searching for him. Though just as she started to turn away, she spotted a piece of the blanket her son had been wrapped in. A piece of the blanket had been torn off and was caught on some of the branches in the undergrowth. This put the nun into a pure state of panic and dread. Her baby, what had they done with her baby? She knew that her pursuers must have found him. Maybe he had started crying from missing her and led them right to him. She didn't even think of this in her panic. So she slowly made her way back to St. Anne's to find her baby, but when she got there, her feelings immediately changed. She went from panic to inconsolable grief. There in the swimming pool on the property, she saw her son's body floating face down in the pool. She knew it was too late and that her son was now in God's arms and she would never be able to hold him again. This was too much for the nun to bear, and grief overtook her. She looked over and saw a nearby plant with some berries on it, and she knew what she had to do. She grabbed and ate handful after handful of the berries, even though she knew they were poisonous. And not long after, she followed her baby into death. This account is utterly horrifying. Well, the other accounts like this really aren't much better. Another account involves a pregnant nun who wants to keep her baby, but the mother superior would not allow it. If she did, it would cast a bad shadow on the church. So after the nun gave birth, the head nun drowned the baby in the swimming pool. And when the mother of the baby began searching and questioning about the location of her child, the mother superior had to further take care of the situation and ended up drowning the nun in the same swimming pool. So this begs the question, 
Do these nuns still roam the property looking for their child? Could these accounts be the apparition of the nun who tends to search the pool area extensively? So these are the stories associated with nuns. And there is another story I'm not going to cover too extensively that happened in 1997. There were 30 teens that snuck onto the property to vandalize it and check out the haunted reports. But they were detained by some guards that were on site who ended up tying them together by their necks in the bottom of the swimming pool. They were treated pretty poorly and there was a big courtroom drama surrounding it. But at the end of the story, no one was harmed. No one died. Therefore, I'm not going to go into the details as it really doesn't impact the haunted reports with this story. And speaking of haunted reports, let's dive into the facts of the legends that I covered. The stories of the nuns and their babies are quite disturbing, but how many nuns did this happen to? Well, in short, none. These stories I mentioned are well-known folklore in the area, but there are no records of a nun's death or deaths of babies on the site. Now, you might ask, how can this be proven? As, of course, the Catholic Church would want to cover it up. Well, if a nun died, the church would have to recognize that the nun was missing, and this did not happen at all. And as for the babies, well, we can't technically prove that baby deaths did not happen, but let's think about this a little more rationally. First off, these stories talk of both murder and suicide. And both of these are obviously against the Catholic faith and would prevent someone from going to heaven. So I highly doubt that this would be commonplace for nuns to perform. Also, I'm not sure why people would think that these nuns came here to give birth. There are no local reports of seeing pregnant nuns at the time, and there were no medical facilities for birthing on the property at all. You might think a retreat for nuns sounds strange, so why else would they be here? But it's not strange at all. It's actually quite normal for nuns to experience a retreat. Interestingly enough, all the haunted reports center around the nuns, who actually occupied the property less time than any other part of the history of the camp. It's likely these stories began popping up as locals were really intrigued about the nuns in their city. It was very unusual, and again, locals would kind of check things out, and rumors, lore, legend, all of that started. This has led to the urban legends today, and if we take out the tales of the nuns haunting the place, the sightings, things like that, they don't really have a lot of weight to them. The only reported deaths that could have been associated with the property relate to the Hatch family who had originally built the property. Again, Hatch's wife died in 1919 of chronic kidney issues in the area, and it is said that she frequented the cabin as Mr. Hatch built it for her. Though she split her time between Logan and New York City, and she wasn't living at the property at the time of her death. Her address and place of death are actually listed on 3rd Street, about 12 miles from the cabin. And Hatch's son, Hezekiah Jr., also died in 1919 of heart issues, but again, he didn't live in or die in the cabin. Also, Hatch's son and his wife don't really make a lot of sense as there's no males other than children who are spotted on the property, 
And George's doesn't make sense as there's no reports of an older woman on the property other than the woman dressed in black. At the end of this story, there are no accounts for what the haunted reports would come from. It's likely these reports came from frightened people investigating the dark woods in the middle of the night. And of course, you're going to hear animals, strange noises, so I can imagine people seeing things and hearing things. Sometimes the screaming of a rabbit being gotten by a coyote does sound like a baby crying. And our brain can go definitely into overdrive, especially in places we're not familiar with, like the woods. Lastly, there is really no photographic evidence of hauntings. The only photographs we have of hauntings are the people haunting this property who have been vandalizing it for decades. So to all of you who are doing that, please leave the property alone and let the poor man finish it so that people can enjoy it in the future. And that covers St. Anne's Nunnery. I would love to hear your feedback on whether you think it is haunted or not. Maybe you've had a personal experience or other facts you'd like to share. I'd also love to hear your feedback on this episode or any suggestions you may have for a future episode. Make sure you tune in every Wednesday wherever you tune in. And don't forget to leave a review and follow this podcast so you know as soon as a new episode is ready. You can also follow the podcast social media for more information on each episode, including pictures, links, and much, much more. You can follow on Facebook at Paranormal Exposed, on Instagram at The Paranormal Truth, or you can always shoot an email over to ParanormalExposedPodcast at gmail.com. Again, thank you all so much for tuning in, and I will catch you all next Wednesday.